Howdy, folks, and welcome to A Green Way Forward. I'm your host, David Cobb, coming at you from Eureka, California, joined, as always, by Michael O'Neill in Syracuse, New York. Howdy, Michael. Hey, David. And we are joined by another California, longtime Green Party of California organizer, member, candidate, uh, Laura Wells. Laura, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So before we get underway, I want to remind folks that you're watching and or listening to A Green Way Forward. This is the podcast and live stream where we talk, take a look at issues uh, and events, organizations, but very specifically from the Green Party perspective. If you are watching on live stream, please share this with your own page or any page that you manage. If it's live, then you can join the conversation in the comments section. Michael O'Neill will be not only as technical director will be participating, but will also be scanning those comments. And if there's anything that you want to specifically ask, Michael will try to capture that and we'll get Laura's opinion on it. If you're listening on a podcast, please make sure to share this podcast with family, friends, and any platform that you own. Uh, the Green Party and this program is getting larger, stronger, and better organized every day, and we're doing it because of ordinary people like you. So, Laura, I know you uh, as a longtime Green Party organizer. I know you as a deep thinker. I know you as a personal friend. I want to give the audience a chance to get to know you a little bit. So I'm going to ask an open-ended question to say, Laura Wells, who are you and why do you spend so much time helping to grow the Green Party? <laughs> well, let's see. Uh, I, <laughs> I grew up in Michigan, and then I've been living in California, though, for decades. And I was... Honestly, how I started with the Green Party of California was an unusual way, I believe. A friend of mine said I, that he had a dream that I was in politics. And I said, I hate politics. And he said, well, there's a brand new party in California, the Green Party of California. This was 1992. And I, he said, find out about it. And so I found out that it has the values that I have and millions if not hundreds of millions of Americans have, which is peace and nonviolence, the environment, social justice, and real grassroots democracy. And it doesn't take corporate money. And so I found that out, and then I've been green ever since, because that is really what I believe this country needs. So I, I think it's really interesting. You just rattled off the four pillars of the International Green Party movement, peace, justice, real democracy, uh, and deep ecology, and you did it so effortlessly. I also think it's interesting that you said, I hate politics, but clearly you have a vision uh, for changing the world. So uh, what has your experience been about the Green Party that makes it really different than just being progressive Democrats? Well, it's the corporate money is a big, huge part of it. And it's the understanding about how everything is interconnected. Uh, just like, you know, what's in the news lately. There just in the past week, just over a week, there were three mass killings in the United States. Those are totally interrelated to the problems that we have that we could with Green Party values and with not taking corporate money, we could overcome. What happens is that the um, people like in El Paso, 
where somebody, I believe the quote was, he wanted to kill as many Mexicans as he could. You know, Mexicans have been used as a scapegoat for economic problems, for loss of jobs and all of that. In 2008, correct me anybody if I'm wrong, but I think it was the banks that brought down the economy. I don't think it was people from any other country, immigrants from anywhere, let alone Mexico. And the justice, uh, the, the way that justice is applied and misapplied in this country has everything to do with um, how people can take it upon themselves to buy a gun that can kill 20 people in a minute uh, and uh, somehow think that's okay. I mean, we have the death penalty, the state models killing. We have the military invasions that we have that models killing. We have nuclear weapons. I mean, I could go on about that, but- So I'm glad that you actually took us to the headlines and these horrific uh, terrorist attack, white supremacist terrorist attacks, because uh, that's what they are. And I love the fact that you are making the connection between the uh, U.S. foreign policy. You're making the connections uh, between the 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 collapsing economy brought on by the Wall Street banksters, and it reminds me, Michael O'Neill, of the conversation we had just last week, uh, and then and have been having periodically uh, about in this historic moment, we are at a moment where the neoliberal agenda and the so-called center is collapsing, and we are going to see either some version of eco-socialism or some version of fascism. Uh, and we're actually seeing that uh, these attacks are actually a function uh, of that polarization. Uh, I'm wondering, Michael, if you see the same thing I'm seeing here. 100%, David. And, you know, I, uh, I took a look at the manifesto of the, uh, the heinous uh, shooter in El Paso, Texas. And to the extent uh, we put stock in what he wrote as his actual beliefs— I think it's accurate to call him an eco-fascist. He claimed to be concerned about climate change and climate chaos. He claimed to be concerned about environmental degradation and environmental catastrophe. But And he claimed even to be against corporations and corporate rule. But as we've seen so many times, when capitalism runs amok, if the people are not able to assert uh, some sense of, of reasonable control of, of economic democracy through socialism or a, a you know an allied uh, vision, then fascism steps forward to uh, to save capitalism from itself and well more accurately to resolve capitalism's contradictions right at the expense of immigrants at the expense of poor people at the expense of women. And through violence and through uh, horrific acts of violence at pretty much every scale imaginable. And so I think this is absolutely a microcosm of of eco-socialism versus eco-fascism. And so go ahead. I am so glad that you made that point, Michael, because here is, I think, that what we have to really come to terms with capitalism and its inherent contradictions is coming to an end. But I don't celebrate that necessarily because it is going to transform into fascism if we do not interrupt it. And I believe, and I'll just be very blunt here, that the Green Party's inherently 
uh, interconnected vision of how to order society is the path forward uh, to eco-socialism and to actually having a future. Because if there's going to be a future, it will be a green one. Um, and this brings me to the uh, uh, to a question that Andrew, one of the viewer listeners, has asked Laura, and that is: During your campaign, did federal cannabis legalization factor into that campaign in any way? And if so, how? Well, the one thing that it it, it helps to um, keep me motivated because the Green Party has been on the side of legalizing cannabis for decades, for a long time. You know, how long has the Green Party been in the, in this country? It's been international for even longer, but it's been around, it's been in California for 27 years. And we have been in, on the side of legalizing cannabis. And so I go, okay, as well as legalizing gay marriage, you know, marriage equality, as well as... Uh, and some of the things that haven't happened yet, like ending the death penalty and all that. But so when I hear that um, cannabis is be, being more and more legalized, less and less criminalized, I'm happy that I've been with the Green Party. And it makes me want to stick with the Green Party because we're doing the right thing. We're, in a, we're under tremendous attack because of this political system that makes people think that you can't have what you want. You know, if you try to get what you want, you'll get the exact thing that you don't want. That's what a miserable message. But that's the message of our electoral system. So I was, I was, it, it helped me energize. Well, I think the, the point here is that uh, while there are states that have legalized or in the case of New York recently decriminalized cannabis, at the federal level, it's still on the books as illegal. And this has actually caused some contradictions and some some worry, like even within the cannabis industry where it's operating legally within certain states, they have trouble accessing uh, loans or banking services because at the federal level, if if I understand it correctly, uh, it's it's still uh, considered a criminal activity or, or and everyone's wondering if at any, any point the federal government's going to crack down and claw back any of the advances that states have made regarding this question. I think that was maybe part of the um, what was informing that question regarding a congressional race? Well, if, if I can jump in, it they're not going to be able to stop it. You know, sooner or later, it is going to happen. That's the the point that I was um, that I'm looking at. And just to, I completely agree with you, Laura. Let's let's be clear. As a lawyer and a revolutionary myself, I often say, law follows culture. In other words, you don't actually build movements front legally, right? You actually build mass movements. You ch change culture. People are willing to act in a militant, disruptive fashion, and you force the law and the society and the culture to accommodate the new reality. And I think that that's actually what we're seeing happen uh, with cannabis. We certainly saw it happen with the legalization of gay marriage. Uh, I think that we're seeing it across a number of things, which, by the way, we should say the Green Party has been on the right side of every single one of those issues and more. I think that we're going to see it uh, with uh, guaranteeing health care and access to health care as a fundamental human right, which has been the Green Party's position since its inception in this country. Michael's point is a good one, though. I think that it's worth pointing out uh, that the the 
running a congressional campaign gives us an opportunity to make the point uh, that the Democrats in Congress, even when they have majorities, don't fight for the sorts of things that they could fight for unless they're being pushed. Yeah. Even that, you know. (laughs) Laura, that actually brings me really, I want to frame this because uh, when you ran, I mean, you you didn't just run for Congress. Uh, You ran against Barbara Lee, uh, an icon of the left. Uh, And what especially impressed me was not not just the kind of campaign that you ran, but afterwards you wrote uh, an incredibly insightful uh, uh, essay called Running Against Barbara Lee, 13 Surprises in a Challenging Campaign. You wrote it as a bit of constructive critique and self-critique. You submitted it to the Green Party's National Women's Caucus in advance of the Green Party annual national meeting. So I'm going to actually ask you, first of all, why was this, why did this opportunity present itself to you to run uh, against Barbara Lee without the so-called spoiler problem? Because of the, uh, I'm in California and California implemented a top two primary system. Louisiana has something like that. Washington, the state of Washington has a top two primary, and then California got it starting with the elections in 2012. And it affects all state and federal offices for the legislature and all of that, except for a president, which is outside of it. Okay, so that what happened was that somebody pointed out that Barbara Lee was going to be on the primary ballot unopposed. The only person. What happens in a top two system, which is terrible, basically, imagine that. You know, the top two vote, everybody runs against each other, whether you're green, peace and freedom, Democrat, Republican, libertarian, whatever. You run against each other, and only two candidates are on the November ballot. So that totally favors the Democrats and the Republicans' name recognition big name recognition, and big bucks from the corporations and their billionaires. However, Barbara Lee was running unopposed. So who was going to be the top in the top two? The top write-in candidate. So somebody said, let's run a write-in candidate. Let's, r- let's run that in, in for the primary. And then if we win that, we get to be on the ballot in November. So we ran and... Uh, I ended up getting 832 people wrote in Laura Wells and connected the arrow because they'll throw it out if you don't connect the arrow. And that was three times as many as the other four candidates combined. So then there we were on the ballot. It was because this system is so bad that you have to look for the opportunities and take those. And some of the opportunities that it would be well for the, uh, for the Green Party to take all over the country is when people are running unopposed, when uh, some local offices have nobody running at all. Look for those opportunities and then run. And so here was a, here was an opportunity. We took it and ran with it. And I think it made a difference. And you know, Barbara, uh, Laura, I think that running against Barbara Lee on first blush, I know a lot of people are like, oh my God, why do that? But I really appreciate uh, how you just laid out the need for greens everywhere to be opportunistic, to look for opportunities that we can leverage to not only run, but to get our message out, to build the party, 
and so forth. So I really appreciate this. Uh, and uh, I think it's an important thing uh, to, to think about. Uh, Yamo writes in to say he thinks Barbara Lee is an icon of the center, not of the left. How would you respond to that, Laura? The left has moved to the center. I mean, what is now called, uh, you know, the progressive caucus, the policies of even the, put it in quotes, progressive wing of the Democratic Party are what would be called conservative 10, 20, 30 years ago in this country. And certainly what would be called conservative all across Europe. I mean, the UK, France, Germany, they all have health care for everybody that's that's paid for by the state. Margaret Thatcher could not get rid of the health care system in UK, and she was an arch conservative. And Angela Merkel is a conservative. Is she getting rid of the health care system in um, in Germany? No. And so the um, yeah, so I would agree that centrist conservative the progressive when somebody like bernie sanders um proposes things that were part of the fdr democratic party they call him a a, a wild-eyed radical that's like a democratic socialist they say well you can't do that here you can do that i mean hillary said something like well that's denmark you know that's not the u.s it used to be we used to have California. We used to have free university tuition. That was this state, this country. So, um, yeah, centrist, centrist is almost a compliment. And I, I, I hasten to point out that the re, it's not like the U.S. citizens are genetically defective. Uh, let's be clear. The reason uh, that things are, are trending to the right, in my opinion, uh, are a number of factors. And one thing that doesn't get enough attention, and that is a voting system that forces voters to vote against the things that they hate the most rather than for what they want. And that's why on a Green Way Forward, we constantly uh, talk about the need for proportional representation and ranked yeah. choice voting to change the voting system. And I'm wondering, Laura Wells, were you able uh, to put that issue, the voting system, You've already talked about corporate money, but were you able to talk about the voting system uh, uh, as part of your messaging? Definitely. And talking about the, the voting system, bringing up uh, proportional representation, we had an opportunity, actually, to have a side-by-side forum with the Green and, and the progressive incumbent. So progressive Democrat incumbent, Barbara Lee and Laura Wells, side-by-side, in Oakland City Hall, and at the it was added to an Oakland mayoral forum. I live in the city of Oakland. Uh, in October, um, by the League of Women Voters, and I greatly appreciate the League for doing that. It was a thirty-minute forum. It wasn't a debate back and forth, which is what we were actually calling for. But it was a forum. It was better than nothing for sure. And we were able to talk about the the systems and proportional representation and and certainly corporate money and the and the horrible effect that it has. You know, talking about um, um, Americans are not stupid, um, but there but we have through a very concerted effort by what I might call the military industrial 
pharmaceutical, financial, media, insurance complex, our expectations have been diminished. And so one of the big messages of this campaign, running against the supposedly, you know, arguably one of the most progressive members of Congress, um, who still didn't back single payer in 2009 when it would have mattered, um, running against somebody like Barbara Lee, it's raise our expectations. So Barbara let me ask you, I want to make sure, to, because our expectations low. A viewer listener, David, writes in to ask, uh, was Barbara Lee willing to accept you as a legitimate candidate? And if so, why do you think so? I think that she would much prefer, it, much preferred having the Republican um, win the write-in candidate or even be on the primary ballot against her rather than have a green. They can, uh, uh, and so a legitimate candidate um, they they just wish we would roll over and play dead, which we're not going to do. Um, when they run against Trump or they run against a Republican, they just say the centrist kinds of things that Yamo talked about. Um, those kinds of things sound good, you know, but when they're running against a green and green is talking sense, is talking about what we really need in this country in terms of education, healthcare, housing, justice, you know, all of that, then they have a problem. They would love it if we weren't credible, um, but we are. So um, I want to take a moment to read from this incredible essay that you wrote. Uh, it, this is point six, and you've alluded to it. Uh, our message emerges, raise our expectations and apply pressures. You say, we were challenging a political system that refuses to provide the very basics in the richest country on earth. Basics like healthcare, housing, living wages, debt-free education and real justice. We pointed out that we used to have some of these and other countries have them now. There's no excuse for it, but there is a reason. The billionaires and their corporations have bought out both parties and are running our country. Working with their politicians and the corporate media, they lower our expectations and get us accustomed to accepting worse conditions than other wealthy industrialized countries, end quote. So I'm going to ask you, Laura Wells, were you able to raise expectations and apply pressure? I love what you've written when you ran this writing campaign to get on the ballot and when you were on the ballot in the general election, do you feel like you were able to raise expectations? I believe so. And one of the reasons, just looking at the results, is that while they don't do very many polls that include greens, no matter what level we're talking about, local, presidential, and in between, there was one prediction that we found in ABC News online, and it predicted that I would get 9.7%. And instead I got, it's in the thing, 11 point, you know, almost like 11.6%, almost two points higher. So rather than 9.7, it was like 11.6. 34,000 people voted for the Green candidate, me, rather than Barbara Lee. And as I said earlier, we got a higher percentage running against Barbara Lee than the Republicans did in the past two November races, which would have been 
20, uh, 2014 and 2016. So in 2018, we got a higher percentage. So those, so more people than were expected did vote for the green. And I also know that how, that even beyond the vote, we ruffled some feathers and rattled some cages. Hey, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. So uh, Nicole writes in, first of all, to say thank you, Laura, for all you did in your campaign, and then asks a specific hard question. What do we as Greens need to do to upseat some of the longtime incumbents that are up for re-election in 2020? You know, you never know when something's going to flip. You know, the, 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 and often, you know, there's that saying that's the darkest before dawn or something. But what we keep doing is looking for those opportunities and continuing. I know that Rodolfo Cortez Berrigan ran in 2018. He's running again. There are other people who are running for Congress as well. I think Chanel Pittman, Southern California, and other people across the country. We need to, believe me, I think everybody knows how discouraging <laughs> trying for a better world is, no matter what you're doing. Certainly it can be discouraging within the Green Party, because it's so stacked against us. But sooner or later, um, we, it, will, it will flip. And I'm hoping that it flips toward the people as opposed to toward the corporations, in other words, toward eco-socialism rather than toward fascism. Um, and we need to be there. So all I can, there, there is no... Uh, no specific step one, two, three, four, and then we'll make it. We need to try, we need to run with the system as it is. We need to try to change the system and work to change the system. Uh, Joanna Macy says something like, and I'm simplifying it, but it's like fight the bad, work for the good, and change the process. Laura. Um, so we, we work on all of those things. And, and how do you know which one to work on? Follow your heart. Absolutely. You know? And let's let's talk about one aspect of the process of running for office that I was alarmed to read about in your essay, which is these uh, these exorbitant candidate statement fees that you talked about within your campaign. Uh, you had an internal debate about whether or not to pay out the over twelve thousand dollars to have mm -hmm. a candidate statement circulated as part of the campaign. And, and that's a flat fee for Congress, but you mentioned that it's $25 per word if you're running for statewide office. I think for a lot of folks outside of California, the idea that you have to like literally pay money to per word or as a flat fee to uh, have a statement circulated as part of a public candidacy is alien and bizarre. Uh, can you explain uh, how do these candidate statements work and, and how on earth did, did it come to be you know, 12, over $12,000 to have your, your words as a candidate circulated in, in ostensibly some kind of public piece of campaign infrastructure? Right, something, the voter pamphlet that goes to every voting household in the state, in, the, in your district. Um, and it used to be free. It was zero dollars. And so what happened was that something that was called electoral reform um, and the Green Party undoubtedly did not um, back it in behind the scenes, you know, and tucked away in some little part of that was that the counties and the state 
could charge the candidates for those statements in order to pay for the pamphlets. There's such a thing uh, as public campaign finance. That's one of the reforms. Honestly, I think proportional representation is more important than that. And I think ranked choice voting, because even then, if you don't have the big bucks, if you've got uh, proportional representation, people can still determine what your values are and vote for you. However, there's public campaign finance. This is a perverse form of reverse public campaign finance where the candidates are sending the money of of my grassroots budget. It would be like a quarter or a third of the money that I raised from individuals would go to the state of California or the county of Alameda County. You know, it would go. No, you're, you're exactly right. It's it's completely outrageous. And it's like. Um, you know, you have to be rich to run. They want they want you to be rich to run. Well, guess what? Not rich. You know, we're we're running and we're not rich. We're not stopping and we're not rich. Absolutely. You know, Laura, I really appreciate how you uh, tied those together because one of the things that Greens have been calling for is to democratize elections, uh, and for us. That means first and foremost, well, look, they're all interrelated, but number one, you have to count all the votes. Uh, We know that sadly that's actually not taking place now. We also know that we have to get corporate money and private money out of the process and have true publicly funded elections. We also know that we need to move towards proportional representation and ranked choice voting. Uh, That is the voting system. We also know that we have to end the racist application uh, of the uh, felony disenfranchisement uh, that is working to specifically target uh, poor people and people of color to prevent them uh, from being able to vote. So uh, it, it seems to me that this is a show, Michael, that you and I ought to do sometime where we actually just look at elections themselves and say, even though we're not electoral fetishists, right? Uh, that's not all we do in the Green Party. We do actually call to change the process of how elections work. One hundred percent. I wanted to could could I add something really quickly because proportional representation is not something that is a household phrase. Not everybody knows it, and so I think it's important to point out that more than ninety countries in the world use it. So it's not an exotic kind of a thing. You know, we are definitely on the on the outskirts of uh, of that. Proportional representation is a tried and true method that we all should know about, but we're kept from knowing it. Laura, fact, I'm right. You're right about that. And I'm going to go one better, Laura Wells, and tell you not only is it used by over 90% of the world, but 90. in the last 30 or 40 years, every single country that began to move away from the single member district first past the post or, 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 or just start to, to use elections, every single one of them uh, rejected the kind of system that we use in this country and opted for proportional representation. Every single one. Yes. And I'm right there with you, Laura. I actually, in, in the chat, and we'll include in the show notes, a, included a link to Fair Votes legislation yeah. for the Fair Representation Act, which would, well, actually, that would be uh, ranked choice voting for Congress. So I, I uh, looked, I, I leaped before I looked there. But uh, here locally, uh, we're, we're working on some proportional representation in my uh, home city of Syracuse, uh, uh, hopefully for a 2020 mm. referendum ballot. So, uh, Yay, Maine, state of Maine. Absolutely. They've got RCV on, on the books there after many hard fought battles. I got to say, uh, Laura Wells, the, the time just absolutely flew by. <laughs> I- 
Go ahead. I want to give you a chance for any final thoughts. Take as long as you like. Well, I just want to say that um, there are plenty of things that we can do. And we need what this country needs. And so many people want a new party. That new party is... The Green Party has what that new party needs, which are those values of ecology and peace and justice and democracy and no corporate money, which means no billionaire money. And so, but e, but the Green Party will continue. We will continue bringing up things like legalized, you know, gay marriage and legalized cannabis and state banks. Those are starting to come out all over the country. Public banks publicly owned banks. And so uh, so I just want to say, we need to raise our expectations. We need to continue to find the opportunities. Keep going. It's, when there's disheartening news, just you know, come back into our hearts and go for what we, it is that we want. And I'm talking about voters and Greens and candidates and everyone. And in, in terms of helping to build the kind of party that we need, we can do it with our votes. We can do it by running as Green candidates and we can do it with our voter registrations. I don't care whether it's today or whether it's April Fool's Day 2020, register Green. I got to say, I, I tell people all the time, if you register as an independent or declined a state or, or even as a Democrat, you're not really saying very much. But when you register green, you're actually making a revolutionary call to transform the system. You're literally voting for peace, justice, democracy, ecology. You're voting for fundamental transformational change every day simply by registering green. Michael, any final thoughts from you? Uh, well, actually, I just wanted to correct myself. Uh, I was right the first time the Fair Representation Act being promoted by Fair Vote does call for multi-member district proportional representation for Congress. And so uh, I want to thank Laura both for her campaign and for mentioning PR in this context, because even though there's been great progress on ranked choice voting, Proportional representation, like you said, is not as much of a household name, and it's up to Greens and allies to fight for PR as a even more transformative uh, way of democratizing our elections, while we also fight for the ability to rank our candidates in order of preference. I want to conclude this program by thanking Laura Wells again for all she has done, all she is doing, and all she will do in the future, not just for the Green Party, but for the movements for peace, justice, democracy, and ecology. I want to thank Michael O'Neill, who serves as both co-host and technical director uh, and is basically one of the go-to folks helping to both as a thought leader and an organizer, not only in the state of New York, but anywhere in the country. And most importantly, I want to thank you, the viewer listener, for tuning in. Remember that we're growing this program because of you. And with a hat tip to Gil Scott Heron, the revolution may not be televised, but it can be brought to you over the sources of non-corporately filtered news, information, and analysis like a green way forward. So I'm going to ask you again, if you're watching on Facebook, please right now share this on your own page or any page that you manage. If you're listening to this on a podcast, make sure to send the link on your own email, Facebook, social media post. Let's get the message out. And lastly, if you have not yet signed up on a greenwayforward.org 
please do so, so that we continue to build this audience, build this platform, and build the movement. Peace. A Green Way Forward is broadcast live on Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time from Dr. Jill Stein's Facebook page. Subscribe to our podcast and e-newsletter at agreenwayforward.org to make sure that you never miss an episode. You can also find us and rate us on iTunes, with more podcast platforms being added each week. Our theme music is Retro Future Dirty by Kevin McLeod, whose fine music can be found at incomptech.com and is available for use under a Creative Commons attribution license. This is Michael O'Neill for David Cobb reminding you to please spread the word about A Green Way Forward and to send us your thoughtful questions and comments to agreenwayforward at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.